Hello, everybody. This is the 20th in the series of podcasts produced by the British Society of Haematology to complement recently published guidelines. And in this specific episode, I will be discussing the updated guidelines on the diagnosis and management of Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. This podcast is being recorded over Zoom due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And so we apologize for any loss in sound quality that may occur. My name is Dr. Dima Al-Shakawi and I'm a consultant hematologist at the Royal Marsden NHS Foundation Trust, where I look after patients with CLL, other mature lymphoid leukemias and lymphoma, including of course, Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. Part of my role includes diagnostics as I work in the Regional Specialist Integrated Hematology Malignancy Diagnostic Unit at the Royal Marsden Hospital. I am also a trustee for WMUK, a national patient charity supporting people living with WM. It gives me great pleasure to discuss these guidelines with you on behalf of all my co-authors, Professor Guy Pratt, Dr. Jamal Qatari, Dr. Shirley Dasar, Dr. Rebecca Auer, Dr. Helen McCarthy, Dr. Rajesh Krishna, Dr. Oliver Miles, Dr. Kara Kiriakou, and Professor Roger Owen. The guidelines on the diagnosis and management of Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia are an update on the previous guidelines that were published in 2014. The update is needed due to the advances in knowledge regarding the genomic landscape of Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, which I will now refer to as WM, and also in advances in therapeutic options available. In this podcast, I will firstly talk about the presentation and diagnosis of WM. I will then talk about the treatment of WM. And finally, I will discuss some of the more common complications seen. Part one, presentation and diagnosis of WM. WM can present incidentally with symptoms of cytopenias, generalized or localized symptoms due to lymphoma burden or with complications due to the paraproteinemia. As with all malignancies, diagnosis is with a bone marrow or other biopsy. Strictly speaking, WM is defined as IgM paraproteinemia with marrow involvement by lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma. Those patients with lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma, but either a non-IgM paraprotein or who are non-secretory are diagnosed as having lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma. IgM paraproteins can be seen in other mature B lymphoid conditions, such as marginal zone lymphoma and CLL, and sometimes it can be difficult to differentiate between them, especially marginal zone lymphoma and WM, due to both often showing plasmacytic differentiation. Some differences can be helpful, such as the slight differences in the immunophenotype and histological findings, but these are not absolute. The finding that mutations in the mid-88 gene are detected in more than 90% of patients with WM and less than 5% in 
patients with other B-cell malignancies has markedly improved our ability to differentiate WM from other malignancies. And therefore, in the latest guidelines, assessment of mid-88 status is recommended for diagnostic purposes in those undergoing a bone marrow. Patients with an IgM paraprotein in the absence of detectable underlying lymphoma are said to have IgM MGUS, monoclonal gammopathy of uncertain significance. The rate of transformation of IgM MGUS is between 1% and 2% per year and is more likely to occur in those who have a detectable mid-88 mutation, which I should add does not differentiate IgM MGUS from WM. It should be noted, whilst not in the scope of these guidelines, that not all so-called IgM MGUS are indeed of uncertain significance. And increasingly, it is being recognized that many can have clinical significance potentially causing end organ damage, such as renal impairment or neuropathy. If WM is diagnosed or suspected, there are baseline investigations that are recommended for all patients. And I will not read out this shopping list for this podcast, but I refer you to the guidelines for details. I want to highlight a few things. Firstly, it's recommended that patients have ophthalmic assessment to look for clinical signs of hyperviscosity. Secondly, anemia is a very common finding in WM due to lymphoma burden, but other causes of anemia are also seen in WM and should be investigated. For example, iron deficiency or hemolysis. Thirdly, further investigations should be tailored according to the symptoms that the patient has. For example, neuropathic symptoms would lead you to also investigate with antibody screen, as well as investigate for possible amyloidosis or cryoglobulinemia. Table one in the guidelines give helpful suggestions to initial investigations to consider depending on the clinical scenario, and also investigations to repeat as a baseline prior to each line of therapy. As the IgM paraprotein is going to be used to track the patient's disease, it is recommended where possible that the analysis of this is performed within the same laboratory using the same method each time. In the next part of this podcast, I'm going to talk about the treatment of WM. A significant proportion of patients are asymptomatic at diagnosis and can be safely monitored at three to six month intervals. Indications for treatment are as per international consensus guidelines and include constitutional symptoms, bulky or symptomatic lymphadenopathy or splenomegaly, significant cytopenias or paraprotein related indications such as hyperviscosity or amyloidosis. As mentioned in the guidelines, it is difficult to formulate rigid evidence-based treatment algorithms for WM, as the majority of studies are non-randomized phase two studies recruiting patients at all lines of therapy, or as part of larger studies for patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in general. As per all BSH guidelines, we have advised that where available and appropriate, clinical trials should be discussed with and offered to patients. Similarly, 
The recommendations for treatment are based on published evidence, but we do acknowledge that not all of these options are licensed or funded on the NHS currently. The potential treatment options include chemoimmunotherapy, proteasome inhibitor containing regimens, and Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors, BTK inhibitors. Firstly, I'll talk about chemoimmunotherapy regimens. The two most commonly used are rituximab and bendamustine and dexamethasone, rituximab and cyclophosphamide. Purine analogues, although effective, are not recommended due to the high rate of prolonged cytopenias and secondary malignancies seen. And chlorambucil may still play a role for very frail patients, but there are other well-tolerated alternatives, so its role is fairly limited. The evidence for dexamethasone, rituximab and cyclophosphamide is based on a phase two trial involving 72 patients with an eight-year follow-up. Response rate is over 80% with a median time to response of four months. Median time to next treatment was 51 months. And toxicity was low with only 14% of patients getting grade three infections. Evidence for rituximab and bendamustine comes from the WM subgroup of trial for indolent lymphoma. In this subgroup, 22 of 43 patients with WM were randomized to having rituximab and bendamustine, and the remainder had RCHOP. Progression-free survival was markedly longer in the R-bendamustine arm at 69.5 months compared to 28 months. Similar outcomes have been seen in follow-on studies and real-world studies, although dose reductions may be required in a proportion of patients. There are no head-to-head prospective studies comparing the two regimens. However, retrospective comparison of the two regimens, so that's DRC versus arbendamustine, do show a faster, deeper, and perhaps more prolonged response with arbendamustine, but with more associated toxicity. There is prospective data from the follow-on study for indolent lymphomas, that's the still NHL 7 2008 maintained study that demonstrates no benefit for maintenance rituximab following chemoimmunotherapy. Due to the reported IgM flare seen with rituximab, it is advised to defer the introduction of this until the IgM or the paraprotein is below 40 grams per liter. Proteasome inhibitors, that includes bortezomib, carfilzomib, and ixazomib, have all been shown to be effective in WM, both in the treatment-naive and relapsed refractory settings. Bortezomib, dexamethasone, and rituximab is the regimen with the longest follow-up. Response rate in 59 patients who entered this trial was 85%, with a median progression-free survival of three and a half years. A quarter of patients developed at least a grade two neuropathy, with 7% developing grade three or more significant neuropathy. The UK study R2W showed a very favorable response rate of 98% with a three-year progression-free survival of 81% with the combination of bortezomib, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab. 
In this study, there were no cases of neuropathy grade three or higher. Perhaps weekly schedules or administering the bortezomib subcutaneously reduces the risk of neurotoxicity. Phase two trials using carfilzomib and exazomib containing regimens have also demonstrated good activity. BTK inhibitors have been a paradigm shift in the treatment of WM. In the pivotal phase two study, exploring the use of abrutinib as a single agent in over 60 patients with relapsed or refractory disease, the response rate was 90%. With extended follow-up, the five-year progression-free survival is 54%. The same group have gone on to explore the use of abrutinib in the treatment-naive setting, and the 18-month progression-free survival is over 90%. The rate of atrial fibrillation is approximately 10% in both studies, and the adverse event profile is similar to other studies using BTK inhibitors. Innovate is a phase three trial that randomized patients to rituximab and ibrutinib versus rituximab monotherapy. The two-year progression-free survival rate in the treatment-naive cohort was 84%, and in those previously treated, 80%. A sub-study of this trial investigated the role of abrutinib alone in 31 patients with rituximab refractory disease, and after a median follow-up of 18 months, the 18-month progression-free survival in this cohort was 86%. Although follow-up is shorter with the second-generation BTK inhibitors, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, there is evidence of marked clinical activity with both of these drugs too. The Aspen study, which randomized patients between xanabrutinib and ibrutinib, showed similar efficacy between the two BTK inhibitors, but lower incidence of atrial fibrillation and hemorrhage in the xanabrutinib arm but higher rates of neutropenia at the 18-month follow-up time point. We do discuss some of the novel therapies that are currently being investigated. And finally, we outline the outcomes reported from retrospective series of the role of stem cell transplant in WM. Obviously, for the majority of patients with WM, this is not a potential treatment option. But for the younger patients, we acknowledge that the role of autologous transplant in this era of targeted agents is more difficult to define, but that it may play a role for some with chemosensitive disease. An important topic in these guidelines is to consider whether a certain treatment option would be favoured in different scenarios. In those who require rapid disease response, for example, in those with bulky disease or amyloidosis, bendamustine and rituximab may be favored as a chemoimmunotherapy option over DRC due to the significant difference in time to response. However, the majority of patients with WM will die of other causes rather than of WM itself. And then it, thus it's really important to consider what is the indication for and what is your aim with therapy, as achieving a deep response may not be required in all patients and may lead to excess toxicity. A second issue with regards to choice of therapy discussed in the guidelines 
is whether there is sufficient evidence at present to support using the genomic status of a patient's disease to guide choice of therapy. The short answer to this is we felt that at this present time, there is not. The slightly longer answer is that there has been a suggestion from prospective studies that those who had a mutation in the mid-88 gene and who were wild type in the CXCR4 gene had a higher rate of major response compared to those who had mutations in both genes with virtually everyone in the former group achieving a major response and approximately two thirds in the latter, which also translated into a difference in progression-free survival. In contrast, no one who was wild type for mid-88 had a major response. However, this cohort just included four patients, and so we felt just two small numbers to make firm conclusions based on this study alone. In contrast, subsequent studies such as Innovate, which randomized patients between rituximab abrutinib or rituximab monotherapy, did not see such a difference in progression-free survival, which was the primary endpoint for this study based on genomic status. We cannot tell just from these two studies, whether this difference in outcome could be due to a possible additive effect of the rituximab or chance findings. Other studies with second generation BTK inhibitors such as acalabrutinib or xanabrutinib have also not reported a difference in outcomes according to genomic status to date. As with other lymphoid malignancies, mutations in TP53 can occur and tend to become more frequent in multiply treated patients. Analogous to other malignancies, they have been reported to be associated with inferior outcomes and extrapolating from our knowledge of these TP53 aberrations, where available non-chemoimmunotherapeutic options would be preferable in this context. In the final part of this podcast, I'm going to discuss some of the complications that can be seen with WM. This podcast and associated guidelines would be especially long if I were to detail all the potential complications that can occur related to WM. And so I'm just going to highlight a few general points and some specific complications. Where appropriate, we would recommend multidisciplinary input with the appropriate specialists involved both for investigation and management. Broadly speaking, the complications can be separated into either related to the lymphoma itself, due to the paraproteinemia, or due to the unique features exhibited by the paraprotein in some patients. High-grade transformation has been reported to occur in approximately 2 to 10% of patients with WM. Interestingly, there is a high rate of extranodal involvement seen. Treatment is, as per de novo, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, although outcomes are less favorable, And in patients who get a good response and who are fit enough, you may consider autologous stem cell transplant consolidation in these cases. Bing-Neal syndrome is central nervous system involvement by WM and should be suspected in anyone with neurological symptoms with known WM. However, the presentation can be very variable. 
Similarly, treatment can be variable. And like the treatment of WM in general, choice should be guided by disease and patient-related factors. With regards to paraprotein-related complications, I'm just going to mention hyperviscosity due to the importance of considering this in patients with symptoms and the urgency in managing it appropriately. The diagnosis of hyperviscosity remains a clinical one. Although the relationship between plasma or serum viscosity and IgM level is not linear and differs between patients, hyperviscosity rarely occurs with paraprotein less than 30 grams per liter. Single volume plasma exchange will reduce the paraprotein by approximately 40%, and it usually takes one to three procedures for symptoms and viscosity to reduce. To summarize, I have discussed with you some of the features of the updated guidelines on the diagnosis and management of WM. We have covered some of the diagnostic features seen, the suggested treatment options, highlighting some of the trial data that these recommendations have been drawn from, and also why one may choose certain therapy. And finally, we have discussed some of the complications seen in patients with WM. I thank you all for listening to this podcast and hope you have found it informative. It has been created to complement the full guidelines, which I encourage you to go and read either through the BSH website or in the British Journal of Haematology. Finally, I would like to alert you to the fact that this is the 20th in the series of podcasts, which means there are 19 other podcasts already available, which highlight other important clinical guidelines for haematologists and healthcare professionals. And I'm sure there'll be other episodes recorded in the future. And so I encourage you to listen to them all. Goodbye.